Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. You don't have to look far to find examples of men behaving badly. This, I hasten to add, though, is not a show about male bashing. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the male operating system and how it can be upgraded. Daniel Ellenberg is a psychotherapist, marriage and relationship therapist, author and a facilitator. He's been leading men's groups for over 30 years. He's also the new sitting president of the American Psychological Association's Division 51, Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. In this conversation, we talk about What does masculinity even mean? What prevents men from forming bonds with other men? How to be a good role model as a dad, a friend, and a fellow man? We explore what he calls traditional masculine ideology, which means no showing weakness, no vulnerability, and which he points out has been passed down for millennia among men. We talk about why men die earlier than women with higher rates of suicide and the importance of self-compassion for men. Speaking of self-compassion, Daniel comes recommended to us by a past guest on the show, the self-compassion expert and researcher, Chris Germer. And also on the subject of self-compassion, we did a whole episode on that on Monday with Chris Germer's longtime collaborator, Kristen Neff, in which we leaned hard into gender differences. In fact, as I mentioned at the beginning of that episode, we're dedicating this whole week to issues related to gender. So go check out Monday's episode if you want. You don't have to listen to that first, though, if you want to enjoy this episode. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk many, many times about our companion meditation app. You might even be a little sick of it. So you might ask, why does Harris keep talking about this? If I want to meditate, can I just go on YouTube and search for a guided meditation for free or sit in silence on my own or use another app? Well, first of all, yes to all of that. You can do all of those things. There are many different ways to learn how to meditate. And if you've already found one or more ways that works for you, that's great. Keep going with it. However, I do think there's something special, if I do say so myself, about the relationship between what we do here on the podcast, interviewing world-renowned experts, getting their take on issues that impact our minds on a day-to-day basis, and the app where we share practices specifically chosen to help you apply the lessons you learn here on the podcast. There's a kind of deliberate symbiosis. In our conversation a few weeks ago, the meditation teacher, Sabine Selassie, hit on something key about this relationship. Let me just play you a quick quote from her. I'm a big proponent of what I would call integrating study and practice. So combined with our practice are what we call insights. That's why this tradition is called insight, is these aha moments And you're so great at articulating that and bringing people on to kind of discuss that. Like, what is it that we're learning? And then how do we kind of reincorporate that back into the practice? I will be honest, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable hearing Seb praise my interview skills. She may or may not be right about that. But what I do think she articulates brilliantly is why we're so gung-ho about the aforementioned symbiosis between the work we do here on the podcast and the work that we do over on the app. Practice and study work best in concert because you're working several parts of the mind at once. That's how I learned from my teachers, you know, engaging my prefrontal cortex through reading books or articles or having conversations. Many of those articles and books were recommended or sent directly to me by Seb. But then also doing the practices that help me sort of integrate 
the wisdom into deeper parts of my mind and my body. And that's really the experience we're striving to bring you here at 10% Happier. The wisdom of experts explained in a relatable way alongside practices that help you apply what you've learned. So I encourage you to give it a try by downloading the 10% Happier app for free wherever you get your apps. Uh, so end of pitch, but thanks for listening. Okay, having said all that, here we go now with Daniel Ellenberg. Daniel, nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Hey, Dan, pleasure to be here with you. I'm just curious, by way of background, how did you get interested in male psychology? You know, on some level, it's always hard to answer the question because we never know what the unconscious influences are there. But I'd say that the things that stand out for me are the fact that I lost my father when I was 10 years old. So I didn't really have a male role model, you know, in my life. And when I looked around, that other kids at that time did. And so that was clearly something that was... Uh, missing for me in my own adolescent development. And then there were just ways that I was, you know, a guy, I played sports, I had friends, I was aware of very much of being a guy and had my own insecurities about that. And one of the things that I, I saw was that very few people were actually talking about what was going on in their inner world. And I just happened to be someone, for whatever reasons, that was wired to pay more attention to my inner world than I think most people and certainly most guys. And then there were things that happened like when I was in eighth grade, or actually the end of between my eighth grade year and my freshman year of high school, I was walking near the high school. And at that point, I had decided I was not going to go out for football. And the expectation was that I would because I was a, a decent athlete. And so I happened to be walking across the street probably about three or four weeks before Ninth grade was starting, and the star athlete of the class yelled out to me, he said, hey, Ellenberg, uh, you're going out for football, aren't you? And I, and I said, well, uh, no. I was dreading this moment, by the way. I said, no, I'm actually going to join the band. <laughs> and, and this was a very long time ago, and, he, and I still remember where he was standing and what he said. He yelled out, you you know, and so you think about that anatomical part and just how much that plays into a young man's and, and sometimes an older man's insecurities because it's basically saying, you girl. Hmm. And when you think about how you control boys and how you control men, one of the best ways to control them is to call them a girl, a sissy, a p these type of way of uh, speaking about them pejoratively like you're weak. You are essentially, you're a nothing. And then I think another influence was when I was 27 and I was looking for a group and I wound up finding a leaderless men's group. And that was really interesting in terms of exploring with a, a group of guys about who we were, what we believed, what we stood for. And it was, it was fairly intimate. And at the same time, it was not exactly what I was looking for. And so I decided when I was 30 to start leading men's groups. And I've actually been doing it ever since. In fact, my first men's group is still going. People stay for a long time. And I've found that over the years that my interest in male relationships and really having deeper connections with guys has been a huge part of my life. And at the same time, I've looked around the world and I've seen that most men don't have close connections with other guys. Some men do, for sure, but I see that there's a major gap in terms of 
the potential for living a happy, fulfilled life. To me, there's a level of sadness around male conditioning, what happens with males growing up, what are the cultural messages, what are the things that get in guys' ways of developing deeper, more fulfilling relationships. And I've, I've devoted my life to helping out in that regard. What do you think gets in the way of men getting close with other men? I think there's three different areas that are all related in some way, but they're also separate. One of them is competition. And it's interesting that the word competition actually comes from the Latin uh, competere, which means to strive together. Mm. And, and what's sad to me is that a lot of competition actually isn't quite like that. It's actually much more doggy dog, beat the other, show your strength, dominate. And when you think about that paradigm, when you bring that paradigm of winning at all costs into friendship, it doesn't go that well. You know, so I think that the competitive part of it is a really enormous thing. And guys don't normally talk about their inner worlds that they feel competitive with friends, you know, or they feel jealousies. And I know for me, one of the things that I started doing earlier in my life was I started talking with friends about when I felt jealous of them, which was like totally outlierish to do those types of things. And I found that it actually brought us closer to talk about the real things. And I, I have a fanatic I use for intimacy because I don't associate it with sexuality, intimacy. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. The fanatic of into me see. And so allowing others to see into you and including your vulnerabilities is a way of getting closer. But paradoxically, in a really competitive model, when you're not showing that and you don't want to show that, it's really, really hard to get close. So that's one of the things. The second is homophobia. We learned that somehow if you love other guys, you're gay. Mm. And you see one of the things that gets thrown, oh, you're so gay, you're so, you're so, it's an insult at least, and it is a threat to the developing male psyche. And I'd certainly all for people being gay if they happen to be so. Not a question about that, but when you think about the social control of that, it is quite profound. And the third is fear of physical violence. That when you get close to guys, you know, and you get really closer is, you know, potentially you say the wrong thing. And with some guys in the wrong circumstances, there can be actual threats that come your way. And so I think that the three of those acting together have a major negative impact in terms of guys developing relationships and, and with other guys. And it's also role modeling, seeing your fathers, you know, other men not necessarily getting close with each other. So I think those are all obstacles to it. And underneath it, when you think about little boys who are so sweet, and this is part of my own personal pain, seeing these sweet little boys who learn at a certain point that they have to adhere to this boy code, which later becomes the man code. And so they learn that showing vulnerability of any type or other is unmasculine. And that's really a major problem because, again, the vulnerability is where we connect. And when you think about Brene's Brown work around the power of vulnerability, that's where we connect. And if you learn that somehow you're gay, you're weak, you're wrong for having vulnerable thoughts and feelings, then you wind up hiding them. And that's where these kids who are very emotionally expressive when they're younger become more harsh, tighter, 
more armored. And it is, it's a, a sadness that I see repeated. I dread this. I have a six-year-old who's very sweet. And I remember what I can interpolate back to what happened with me. I was pretty, you know, I used to act in a lot of plays and was definitely the most emotional person in, in our atomic, in our, in our atomic, in our nuclear family. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Um, and then junior high and fitting in, in a sort of hormonal full flowering of puberty set of guys and the bullying and the name calling and the competition over girls and all that stuff. And I just shut it all down, never acted in another play, basically went through several years of not talking to my parents, um, stopped trying in school. And I dread watching this with my son and hopefully it doesn't happen. But I will say one of the most painful aspects of parenting for me has been noticing how I sometimes have a very negative reaction to his crying. Well, it's not surprising. And it's, it's great that you're noticing that. Just to tell you, Dan, as you were sharing that story, as uh, someone who's done a good amount of my own work, I started to feel a little teary you know, hearing that, that there's just, it touches into just a grief that I live with every day about exactly what you're talking about. The grief that this sweet, innocent little boys like you at that time get shamed into developing these intense defenses to fight against something that is actually natural and human. That's the craziness about it. And so for you, seeing your little boy and noticing your reactions there, it's really an opportunity to go into your own shadow mm. stuff around the shaming and the blaming that happened to you and an opportunity to open to that so you guys can have a happy childhood together, <laughs> you know, potentially. But at a minimum, you're aware of it. And so you can see that. And so you think about it from a mindfulness perspective, that if you weren't aware, if you weren't mindful, essentially, that you're having a reaction, you're much more likely to just act out the reaction, right? So you start to see that reaction and you go, huh, gee, this is it. This is where I came to in my life through no fault of my own. Causes and conditions impacted you. You're the sweet little boy. You learn to survive, and you develop those natural defenses. And so I think there is an opportunity for many of us men to really unlearn some of that conditioning and certainly to become better fathers ourselves in the process and essentially to be more the change, as Gandhi said, we want to see in the world. A little anecdote about parenting a boy as a man, then a question on the back end of it. I really do try to override some of my conditioned responses without being too harsh on myself to see, as right. you just said, these conditions, you know, I'm, I'm swimming in this culture and I've taken in the lessons that I've taken in. And so I really try to talk to Alexander a lot about, you know, being okay with whatever he's feeling. And I was driving him to a Cub Scouts event. We do the Cub Scouts together and he was in the back seat strapped into his child seat or booster or whatever. And he was talking to me about how he gets nervous sometimes. And I said, you know, I get nervous a lot too. And, you know, you're my dad, 
Papa, you know, he has a history of that and it's totally normal. And I said, so, you know, we're moving soon. We're about to move houses. And what makes you nervous about that? And he said, you know, new stuff, like new, new school, new, maybe we're going to get a dog, maybe new dog, mm-hmm. maybe new friends. And then he stopped and said, I just want to be clear. I don't know if he said that, but he, he said, he made a clarifying <laughs> statement, which was, I don't get nervous about new toys. <laughs> just in case you're thinking about getting yes me uh, point taken dude um so but my my question having told that story is i really do and, and my wife and i are, are in lockstep on this really trying to give him some emotional literacy and to be okay not fighting his feelings or ashamed of his feelings see that they're natural however we can't be with him when he goes to school in junior high and his peers, you know, exert whatever pressure they do. What do you do about that? Well, the more open a channel you have, the better. Because when you think about the opposite of what you're attempting to do, where a kid gets shamed, blamed, criticized, put down in some ways for showing more emotionality, a lot of times that kid would go home and some level allude to it or speak to it in some way and then get shut down mm-hmm. at home. You know, so you're going to have a very different situation like that. You're going to be encouraging of him. It's basically you're framing school for him. You will be framing for school for him as he, and life for him as he gets older and essentially saying, you know, you're a very, Alexander, you're a very wonderful, emotional boy. The world isn't as necessarily as open as you are, and it's not the same as we are in our family. So I want you to be prepared for that, that there are times when people aren't going to be as sensitive and kind to you as we are. What I really want with you and from you is for you to come to me so that we can be in dialogue. We're in relationship. We're going to be in this all together. You're going to be in school alone, for sure, but I'm going to be with you mentally, emotionally, and know that there is room for you when you come home to talk about this. So I think that's one part of it. A second part of it has to do with parents of children that he becomes friends with. And ideally, you'll have some type of connection with them, and they will share some values with you. And so I think it's really good to talk. You might even have a group of parents getting together and say, how do we raise these boys in this crazy culture? You know, in a culture that still tends to shame boys for being emotional. So you create like groups of people who have the same type of mentality. And so then they are watching for what's going on with the boys. For example, when there's a sleepover, your son has gone over to somebody's house for dinner or for a Saturday morning visit. But I think it's important to be quite vigilant to some degree. And then another has to do with media, books, movies that on some level are promoting a healthy view of masculinity. And I think that the good news these days is that there's much, 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 much more of a focus on this, on this territory about raising healthy boys. Speaking of media, this is a bit of a random element I'm bringing into this conversation, but my mind's going there, so I'm just going to say it. I I've been looking throughout the pandemic for entertaining, sort of funny shows to watch to take my mind off of all the horror. And I stumbled across a show on Hulu called Letter Kenny, which is about a tiny town in Canada. 
And the main characters are these farmers, heavy drinking farmers who fight a lot, not with each other, but they get in fights with other people in the town. Very sort of male. One of them, my favorite character, is an overweight guy who talks about flatulence a lot and food, and his name is Squirrely Dan. And every (laughs) once in a while, Squirrely Dan will interject into the conversation something he learned from his women's studies course he's taking online. (laughs) And he has this way without being self-righteous at all of talking to the other guys about what's cool and what's not cool to do vis-a-vis women and how you talk about women. And I hope that my son can be like that, can, can find a way to hold his own internally, but also to even educate other males, you know, and meet them where they're at the way Squirrely Dan is doing over beers with his guy friends. They're not alienated by the way he's because of who he is and how he says it. Does that, does that make any sense what I'm rambling on about here? You're not rambling uh, yet, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see where we get there. <laughs> yes, it makes sense. And what I think about is with Alexander, part of what you could be doing with him is really interjecting this idea of him being even a teacher mm. of this. One of the best ways to learn something we know is to teach it, and if you can't teach it, you don't really know it, right? And so think about with him saying, hey, you know, you could be a role model for these other guys. I mean, we look out in the world, and we're not hurting for a material about what's messed up in the world, and you say, you can actually be a beacon of light for these other boys and men as you're getting older. And just to step back for a moment, what I've seen a lot as a psychologist is that when parents plant these seeds in the young person's minds, boy or girl or somewhere in between, in their mind, they can really get fertilized there. And when you, if you keep reinforcing that over and over again, that, hey, you can make a difference in this world, a lot of kids, they go, oh, wow, I can make a difference in this world. I can make a difference in this world. And you think about that in contrast to like, oh, God, you can't do anything right. You know, you're a loser. Jesus, how can you? I can't believe you're my son. And that is actually a message that, unfortunately, a fair amount of people hear. So you have a high degree of potential influence here, Dan. What is traditional masculine ideology? Well, it's normally called traditional masculinity ideology as the correct name for it. But basically, it's a set of norms that are taught to boys over the years. And it's handed down, I would say, from millennia there. And they tend to fall under the guise of or the rubric of stoicism. Don't show too much about what you feel. Don't ask for help. Real men know where they're going. They certainly don't need directions, right? Don't show vulnerability. I think that's actually the linchpin of what keeps the whole traditional masculinity ideology together. Don't show any weakness, any kind of feminine side. Female is bad. Male is good. I'm not saying that, obviously. I wouldn't want this to be taken out of context. Be a braggadario in a certain way. Be successful. Be a success object. And so it fits into a certain stereotype of a guy who's strong, has it all together, has money, is in control, never shows weakness. And we know that this is just insane, really, because it's just not human to be all that 
well put together, so to speak. And it's actually not well put together. It's actually quite defensive and it's threat-based. What we're trying to do, and I say we because I'm involved with a division, American Psychological Division, you know, that is very focused on that. I'm involved with other groups that are really trying to expand the range of what's possible for guys. Because I think that the original sin, and I think about sin as the meaning of missing the mark, is that we tend to see attitudes and behaviors as male, masculine, or female, feminine. And they're not. You know, so you think about you know, compassion. I know that you had Chris Germer on here and you had Chris and Neff on here with their work in self-compassion. And we know that compassion has been seen as a feminine trait, right? And so why is that? Like, why is compassion under the domain of girls and women? Now, certainly girls and women can be compassionate, but why not boys and men? It doesn't make any sense. But I do think it's something that's just been handed down from the millennia and that at a certain point, it made sense if there are hunters and gatherers and the guys are bigger and stronger, that they're going to go out and hunt the wild beasts and the women are going to be picking berries and taking care of, of the young. So it made sense to have a division of labor like that. And so it's been promulgated through the generations, but to some degree, we haven't changed the operating system that much. And so I think about this story about this little girl who asks her mother, she says, Mom, why do we always cut the pot roast this size? Mm. And she said, well, my mother always did it that way. And then she went and asked her mother, the little kid's grandmother, why do we always cut it this size? And the grandmother said, well, you know, that's what my mother did. And it turned out that there were four generations. So she went to the great-grandmother and said, why do we cut this? And she said, well, that was the size of our pot. <laughs> How can we change the operating system to use the analogy you used? I think it's people like you, you know, who, are, who have a, a microphone and a megaphone who can really, you know, put out the message. There are people who can actually make a difference in terms of sharing what it's like to be human. You think about, for example, male athletes who are considered to be often the most masculine, and even like football players, the most masculine of masculine. And when guys like this come out and they say they have mental health problems, like Kevin Love, who's a star basketball player who came out and started talking about his depression, you know, and other people come out and they say, you know, I always had to uphold this view of being strong and together and I never needed help. But actually, at a certain point, I started breaking down because I wasn't asking for help and I needed help. And actually, it's not courageous or strong to bear it alone, but it's much more courageous to actually ask for help. And I'll tell you that being involved with a lot of people involved in the area of male evolution, shall we say, there is a lot going on, even in the territory of coaching. One of my colleagues is a sports psychologist at Texas Tech University, and he's talking with you know, the, the you know, athletes about showing vulnerability, you know, asking for help, having more collegial, showing when you don't know something. Like, the education is happening right now, much more so than when I was younger. So it's a slow process, and it may feel like it's pushing a big rock up a very steep hill, but it is happening. And there are different magazines out there, like The Good Man Project, The Mankind Project, there's a lot of focus 
on men evolving. And I think that the future of our planet, frankly, is dependent on men getting with the new operating system. And obviously, there's a lot of pushback, you know, right now, because when things change, you can be sure that in the shadows, those who are in the shadows will come out of the shadows. And we're seeing that even with the insurrection. You tie the insurrection to masculinity gone wrong. I, yes. I mean, I, I don't think it's the only factor. Like like most areas of life, there's complexity to it. But I think about, if I may speak about our ex-president, you know, for a moment, he is the poster child for kind of negative masculinity, authoritarian masculinity. He never admits a fault. He's always trying to dominate. He's always trying to be in control. And if you mess with him, he'll attack you. And that display of masculinity plays with a good amount of people. And it's often with people who have more authoritarian parents, you know, particularly fathers. You know, and so you know, we're dealing with levels of complexity in our families, in our subcultures, in our cultures, in our world that are pretty frightening. And to some degree, I think it's beholden on a lot of people to get with a new program, which is to really show up as full-hearted people, as full-hearted men who are willing to challenge the, st- the status quo, but not through hatred. And that's one of the, the challenges I see going on, is that hatred begets hatred. And I'm not saying that those of us who tend to be more on the left should stand by idly and not stand up. But I am saying that I'm concerned about the level of vitriol and hatred that comes really all over the political spectrum. You use the term negative masculinity. Was there a reason why you chose not to use the term toxic masculinity? Yes, as a matter of fact. I chose to not use it because I think it's been bandied around a lot too much in the media and in my American Psychological Association. We're trying to keep away from that. And I think one of the big problems is that masculinity in general is being shamed, I think. You know, and so the question is, like, what exactly is masculinity? There is an association these days that masculinity is bad. Femininity is good. Masculinity is bad. And there are people who are you know, fighting against that. I tend to move back from even using the terms masculinity and femininity. Because, you know, a man, say, can have a multitude of different aspects, right? And some of them may be more yin, you know, more yielding. Some may be more yang, more solidly strong-based, more assertive, more even aggressive. We as human beings have the full range of possibilities. And so when I hear things like, you know, men should get more in touch with their feminine side, I kind of roll my eyes, frankly. Hmm. You know, because they're like, this is bad branding, <laughs> really bad branding, you know, because I think it's much more about getting in touch with your emotional sides. And so when we come back to masculinity, the negative masculinity is more in terms of what I was speaking about. Trump is always having to be in control, never asking for help, not showing vulnerability, really not being relational. That's essentially what it's saying. Like, I'm not going to be a relational being that's actually open to connecting with you. I'm either going to be above you or I'm going to be below you in the hierarchy, but I definitely want to be above. 
Much more of my conversation with Daniel Ellenberg right after this. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It seems like you're pushing us toward transcending a dichotomy between masculine and feminine and just thinking about what's in the human repertoire, what's healthy within that repertoire, and which skills and aspects should we develop. Absolutely. That's exactly right. When I wrote my dissertation, which was over 30 years ago, I used a sex role inventory. So I was looking at what are the different psychological differences between more traditionally identified men and more untraditionally or non-traditionally identified men. And in this sex role inventory, which is just generally the way things are, there are certain behaviors that are designated as male, plays with trucks, you know, with sticks or whatever it happens to be, and are female. And one's so-called health is the degree to which one identifies with one's particular sex role. And so if a boy likes dolls, you know, and, and likes more so-called feminine things, he's seen as less healthy mm. than a guy who plays with trucks. 
and like sports, etc. And I think that's the wrong message there. If boys like to play with trucks and want to play football, they're great. But to genderize attitudes and behaviors, I think, is an absolutely major mistake. And I think that we see what's going on with girls and women these days as they're honoring and owning more of their assertiveness, what would be classically called their male sides, they're becoming more whole human beings. And I think the opposite is also true for guys who are honoring that. And I, as somebody who has really worked with you know, men for a long time, I lead these weekly men's groups. I've probably spent 12, 13,000 hours in weekly men's groups over the years. And I can tell you that even the subject of masculinity does not come up very often. Hmm. You know, it's like, what's going on in your life? How are you feeling in this person's presence? Oh, actually, you know, I walked into the room, that's before COVID, and you didn't look at me. And I was wondering, were you upset with me or something? Like the kind of things that people actually are thinking about, but they don't talk about with other people. And so we call these kind of labs, you know, it's kind of an experimental environment to practice bringing your insides out so that you create more of into me see and you ultimately create more connectedness. I can tell you that the guys who have been in my groups, and I know that there are a lot of men's groups out there throughout this country and really throughout the world right now, all generally feel much better about themselves. And they realize that as much as they may feel lonely at times, they're not alone and that there are other guys who experience similar things. And one of the, that one of the part of the crisis is that so many people live in shame, doubt, insecurity, and they don't know that other people do. They think they're unique. Mm. If I may say something about you for a moment. Of course. That's my favorite subject. <laughs> W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? <laughs> you know, so I think about like the the anxiety that you've talked about and how having an anxiety reaction, you know, even a panic reaction there and thinking about what is the role of perceived masculinity in that. Because I think a lot of times what happens for guys, and I don't know if you experience this yourself, is that anxiety, it doesn't feel great, right? It's a gnawing feeling. It's a jittery feeling in the body. And there's a tendency when you think about male psychology to judge that. Like, what's wrong with me that I'm feeling anxious now? I should be strong. I should have no doubts. I should be just stepping up. There shouldn't be anything. And so when you think about that perspective, how you, your, your male ideal versus what you're actually experiencing, there's quite a delta there. And if you try to get rid of the anxiety, which is a tendency, what happens? It gets worse. That which we try to get rid of tends to get stronger. And there are reasons for this, because I think about this whole territory of work called ironic processes, where... There's a part of the mind that's the operating system, and it's trying to be successful at whatever operation there is. And in this case, you say, like, I want to get rid of my anxiety. And then there's a monitoring system that's actually looking to see the degree to which you're being successful getting rid of anxiety. And ironically, in seeing if you're being successful getting rid of it, you're actually exacerbating it. <laughs> You know, and so this was Daniel Wegner's work on ironic processes, brilliant work, I think. 
And so when you think about it from a perspective of men trying to just get rid of things, I don't like that, get rid of that, it makes it worse. And so what happens is we tend to double down on things. We get tighter around that, push them down, get tighter, 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 until we're wound up in a ball. And I do think that that contributes to men dying five to six years younger, committing suicide at four times the rate. And I think it's really problematic moving forward because as I've been really looking at some of the statistics, that girls and women are doing better in general across practically all sectors than boys and men. Now, one of the problems in even saying that is that it could easily be taken in the world in which we live as, oh, and then you're saying like, we should put girls and women down so that boys and men can do better. No, that's not the point. I think one of the big issues is that we tend to live in this either-or world, that if you're raising one issue, it means you're putting down another issue, and that's not at all my point. It's much more about how do we encourage boys and men to get with the new program, and the new program is relational. The world in which we live is a relational world, and we see this in organizations. I do leadership coaching and organizational work you know, as well as being a psychologist. And I can tell you that what we're seeing in the land of leadership is that people who don't have strong relationship skills are not doing as well. They may be very great at tasks, they may be great at visions, but if you're not able to connect with people these days, it just doesn't work well. So to me, part of my message is that, guys, you may not want to be you know, going along with some of the things you read in self-help books. But if you actually want to be a more successful leader, you know, in the world, you actually have to develop those relationship skills. And essentially, at the bottom line, you actually care. You actually care about other people. And in caring about other people, you're obviously caring more for yourself. Well, that's just what I was going to say, because I've found... Again, this is, I don't know that I can make universal claims, but I've just found that for me, a, a big unlock in my relationships, in my being able to feel and express caring for other human beings is to feel and express it toward myself. You referenced Chris Germer and Kristen Neff, the two leading researchers on in the field of self-compassion. We've heard anecdotally that there's something like 80% of the attendees in their mindful self-compassion courses are, are women. What do you think, and this may be obvious, but what do you think the big barriers are for men in adopting self-compassion, which again, there's a lot of research that suggests it's really, really good for you physiologically, psychologically, behaviorally, and it, certainly that I've seen that in my own mind in life. Chris and I have worked together before leading workshops for men and self-compassion. When we connected probably about eight years ago or so, we found that we had some commonality in terms of interest in men and self-compassion skewed in, the, in our particular directions. And I remember then what he was saying, there was actually like 90%, hmm. you know, at least of people who take MSC, Mindful Self-Compassion Workshops, are women. And, you know, I think it fits right in with the whole traditional masculinity ideology, which is that compassion is weak. Mm -hmm. That's the association. And self-compassion is hopelessly weak. Like, really? <laughs> and I, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, shockingly enough. And so, like, oh, poor you. 
You're hurting. Ah, man up, suck it up, give me a break. Now, that is a primary message that guys internalize. By the way, they, they can get that from, from women also. It's not just guys that can be shaming around that. But they get that message. And so when you think about self-compassion, it's first of all, it's an awareness that you're hurting, right? You have to be mindful that there's a moment you're in pain right there. And then what do you do with that pain? Well, the male conditioning tells you to stuff it, to get over it, to push through it, to deny it, all of these different things. Now, that's very, very, very different from being self-compassionate, right? Because in self-compassion, when you're hurting, then you go, okay, let's breathe into that and allow this to be here. In some ways, allowing it to be there like the anxiety, right? And so in allowing that to be there, what happens is it starts to dissipate paradoxically. But you can't do it strategically, <laughs> right? Because that might be the tendency. Like, oh, I know if I'm actually kind to myself right now, it's just going to go away. Okay, I'm being kind, I'm being kind, I'm being kind to myself. No, that doesn't work like that. You actually have to feel that. And in feeling it, you are developing a more internal relationship. And guys, probably some of it's biology, but a lot of it is conditioning that lead us to become more externally referenced, looking out into the outer mm -hmm. world and not paying so much attention to what we're feeling. Because if we were paying more attention to what we're feeling, it would be doubly difficult because what we're feeling a lot is doubt, insecurity, anxiety, depression, some of the difficulties of just simply being human that we've learned to associate as being shameful, right? And so for guys to feel like, oh, I need self-compassion, that in and of itself is a statement that I'm weak. That's the perception I'm weak. But we know from the research that that's not the case. But essentially what we're trying to do is to rebrand self-compassion. I know that some years ago, we started talking about young self-compassion. I know Kristen Neff has been doing a lot of this with fierce, she calls it fierce self-compassion right now, which is really standing up for yourself. Because I think that self-compassion is an area that is widely, widely, widely misunderstood. It's seen as indulgent. It's seen as, you know, being too self-centered, too self-focused. But guys, to do it, it really is a sign of courage. One of the outer works I've done is I have a workshop which I do with Steve Hickman, who's actually the executive director of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And we really look a lot at honoring guys for recognizing, for starters, that they're hurting. That's the first point, you're hurting. And now to be kind to yourself in that, that takes courage, right? It really, it takes courage to go with a new program that you're starting to develop. And over time, you start to, as in the words of poet Mary Oliver, you start to develop a new voice that begins to keep you company, that begins to be with you as you go into the world, being kinder to yourself in the process. And in being kinder to yourself, you actually become healthier and you become kinder to other people and you develop healthier relationships. And in general, you're more successful in life. And this is what we're trying to get across, is that you're not a wuss, you're not weak, you're human. <laughs> and it's tough being human.
you may have noticed once or twice. There are two observations based on what you just said. One, I, I think I mentioned this to Chris, but it probably bears repeating that. I think, you know, having heard about self-compassion for so many years and then refusing to do it, I think in hindsight, one of, if not the biggest, maybe even the sole block for me was negative masculinity, that the whole thing just seemed soft, right? And so a sort of not so subtle subconscious sexism was a block. The other thing is in terms of the new voice that you referenced via Mary Oliver, you can make up, I've, at least I've found, you can make up your own voice. You know, Chris will refer to himself, Chris Germer, as um, sweetie, but I, that doesn't resonate for me. And maybe, that, again, maybe that's just my internalized sexism. I'm, I'm totally open to that. But he, he would, for whatever reason, I don't want to call myself sweetie, but I'm totally fine calling myself dude. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and so I, I really have made a practice of just, you know, like talking to myself the way I would talk to a, I do have a lot of good male friends, um, lucky in that way. What would I say to them? You know, I, I do say things to them. I'll talk to my friends when they're an extremist and, and I will just turn around and talk to myself that way. Sometimes even doing something that's been very uncomfortable for me, which is putting my hand on my chest or something like that. Or I've taken a sort of like kind of smack in my chest the way I would smack my cat's hindquarters when he's feeling frisky. But yeah, so I do kind of you know, make it my own and maybe some sort of embarrassingly traditional masculine ways. But the new voice that I'm taking out into the world is really helpful when I can muster it. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to take somebody else's voice. You can make it your own, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Absolutely. I'm thinking about Alexander right now. I mean, that's going to be incredibly important. Like, will you share with him about that and even share about who you were and how you grew up and how he has an opportunity to really go through life without the wounds that you did. And that's a beautiful thing. I think that's an important message. And in terms of your own personal development, we know that things that we do over and over and over again, especially with passion, stick. Mm. I know you've had Rick Hansen on your show. He's a good buddy of mine. And with all the work on self-directed positive neuroplasticity, when you are taking in the good and you're reinforcing it over and over and over and over again. You're basically changing your brain. Mm. You turn a positive state into a positive trait. Mm. And so that's, that's what you're doing. And you're seeing the rewards of that over time. And I am imagining that over time that will, you know, that will continue to increase. But you have to even believe that it's a possibility, and so when you're recognizing that was, you call it negative masculinity or whatever that was getting in the way, you go like, really, like, I'm going to let some stupid story, belief, get in the way of me living a thriving life? How manly is that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well said. Yes. I want to go back to a question I asked earlier because I think there's more to say on this. And I want to ask it from a male perspective and, and also a female perspective. If I'm a man listening to this and I want to dive in and do this work, maybe I want to join a men's group or maybe I don't. What are my options in terms of taking a look at this stuff? Because I'll just speak from experience. It's not easy to see your own biases and conditioning play out. I mean, it's, it's been quite humiliating for, for me to look at some of this stuff. So how do I do it? 
Well, there are a bunch of different resources out there. There's the Good Man Project, which is a great magazine that's a free magazine people can look up at. There's the Mankind Project. They have weekend workshops. I personally have a bunch of stuff. You can look at the APA Division 51 website. You can find it at division51.net. One of the challenges these days with like whatever the men's movement is, is that there are many different factions in the men's movement. I'm not really talking about the men's rights movement here, you know, which is a whole other animal. But I do think that if you really want to find it, you know, find resources, you will find that. But if you Google men's groups, you'll likely find lots of material there. What I can do is give you a bibliography or mm -hmm. give some resources that people listening to your podcast can reference later on. I think that might be the best place to go from here. That's great. So we'll put a list of books in the show notes. What if you're a man and you want to support other men in your life to do this work without coming off as preachy or, you know, how do we act like Squirrely Dan and effectively kind of inject some enlightenment into the lives of other guys? There's a basic principle here is to give what you want. Hmm. And so if you want openness from other men, the best thing to do is to be open with them. You know, if you come across, I say, hey, man, I got it all together. I've done all this work on myself. I'm done with my personal work, but you, <laughs> you need help. You know, I can tell you, in fact, you need a lot of help, you know, from, from what I can tell. I mean, that's not going to work, really. But generally, if you care and you're coming to it because you truly want to help and you're not being arrogant about it or on some level subversively controlling, share more about yourself and to say like, hey, I'd love to talk with you more about some of the stuff I've been exploring. And it may be like, I've learned things that I realized in my childhood and my adolescence just don't work that well. And I've been, you know, reading this book or attending this group or listening to this lecture or, you know, this TED talk or whatever it happens to be. And I've found that it's freeing for me. And what I want more than anything else is to be free. And that actually is true for me, you know, in, in that. And so if there are things that you can do to be free, wow, how exciting is that? And I think that generally speaking, people read each other pretty well in a way. It's like if, if you're coming from a place of like, hey, you know what? I am like so much cooler than you. I, I've done so much more personal work than you have. I'm a much stronger person than you, you are. And... I think I can help a schlub like you. I mean, the other person says that they're not going to feel the genuine sincerity of that, mainly because it's not there. No, right. People who say that haven't done much work because I, I used to say things like that back when I hadn't done much work. Um, what about women or anybody who does not identify as male who have men in their lives that they want to sort of you know, support doing this kind of examination and work? Are there moves that they can make that have some likelihood of having a positive impact on, on the men in their lives? I think it depends on the man. I think a, a lot of women have found trying to change men not the simplest activities, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> there is. And again, I think it comes from where are you coming from? If, if a woman is on some level thinking that a guy is really a freaking mess and 
it's their job to fix him, that's probably not going to come across as very inviting. Generally, if possible, it's better, I think, for it to come from a man, but that's not always the case. And so if a woman really cares and she can say, like, hey, I've heard about this, you know, I've heard about this group, I've heard about this, might you be interested in this, I'd love to talk with you about it more. Again, it's just that human-to-human connection. And again, it depends on the relationship. Some guys with some women are totally open to hearing. Other guys who tend to be more defended and defensive hear that as shaming. And so it becomes this fine line between how do you, on some level, intervene with a man without triggering his male shame anxiety? You know, like, oh my God, like I've been found out as being weak in some way and trigger into that whole traditional masculinity ideology they've been trying to hide. So it becomes a pretty tender point of intervention there. Now, I will say that I've seen a lot of men change with the threat of loss. Mm. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but when you think about how many like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you if you don't stop drinking. I'm gonna leave you if you keep doing this, then I'm going to leave. Again, I'm not, recommend, I'm not recommending that as the, the first strategy per se, but sometimes you have to keep upping the ante in order to get someone's attention, as you, I'm sure, well know. I think it's interesting you talk about the trigger of seeming weak, uh, certainly a trigger for me, but another big trigger for me is if I feel like people are accusing me of, I read inappropriately, by the way, when somebody points out that I've done something sexist, I take that to, I'm a monster. I have a retractable jaw and cloven hooves. <laughs> and and so Uh-oh. I go right into hardcore defensive mode right now because I don't want to be one of the bad guys and sexists are bad guys. Instead of just seeing, okay, well, no, no, sexism is just infused into our culture. And because those ideas have made it into my mind, sometimes I'm going to act them out blindly and sort of seeing it in an impersonal way. Right. I can just get super defensive zero to 60 because I feel like you're accusing me of being something nobody should be. Does that resonate with you? And does that strike you as a challenge in terms of bringing these things up with men? Absolutely. Well, on one level, we're living in a culture where there is a lot of accusation going on. You're only paranoid if they're not out to get you on one level. You did this and you're a white supremacist or you're a woman hater or you're a misogynist. There's a lot of accusatory energy that's going on in the world. So I think that there's different ways of looking at it. One is to recognize that there may be some shaming energy that did come to you and calling you a sexist. So I don't know exactly the context of the comment that you're talking about, but there's, to some degree, it's kind of like, well, maybe there's something that you are reacting to that was actually intended consciously or not. And then there's still one's own personal relationship to it. Like, to the degree to which you identify with that. As you're saying, Dan, that there's a part of you that probably believes that you're a monster. And I'm not saying it's all of you, but can trigger that whole dynamic in you. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not lovable. If I'm sexist, I'm not lovable. And I have to fight like hell to be lovable. Because generally, people don't install our buttons. I mean, our buttons are installed. They trigger that which has been installed. So that's always an opportunity to do some emotional archaeology to go like, what on earth in me just got triggered so much that I'm so angry, I'm so hurt, I'm so rageful, and that I've lost my center. 
one of the first places to go is to pause there. You know, this is part of mindfulness practice, right? And notice the reaction and give yourself space so that you don't have to react immediately. And we know that when we just settle our minds for a moment, there's an opportunity to sit with and go, oh, wow, that's an intense reaction. Then you're in a position to do something different. And so there are a variety of different options. One of them might be, wow, huh, I noticed that I just got reactive when you said that. And really sharing about like that went into a place like, gosh, I don't want to be sexist, certainly. And, you know, maybe I am in some way that I'm not seeing. Help me understand what it is that you experienced from me that led you to that conclusion. Right? So you're self-regulating, you're pausing, you're self-regulating, you're letting yourself have the experience you're having. I mean, you are having that experience, you're being open to that experience. You are at the same time opening to your curiosity about, well, maybe I am. And then also soothing yourself in the sense of like, even if I am sexist in this one moment, that doesn't make me unlovable, right? How could you not be sexist anyway? I mean, we're, we all are in our own way. We internalize these things. I have a term I call it psychoosmosis. We take in the, all of the messages from the culture through the permeable membranes of the brain, and of course, it's going to be within us. That's just the nature, you know, of these things. But I think that really looking for you, go like, is it in you, or are you sexist in certain ways? And to me, I go like, of course you are. And I'm not saying that because I know you, you know, in particular. I mean, who isn't? It's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. And again, this comes back to self-compassion. What if that's true? How can I be with that in some way? How can I learn from that? You know, to me, the questions we ask ourselves are, are very much related to what we learn. I mean, think about the word question, quest. How am I sexist? Or what can I do about that? What can I learn about that? We all have our stuff. And the more that we can be on a learning path, the better. I think about Suzuki Roshi, the Zen teacher, who said, you are perfect, and there's room for improvement. <laughs> I love that quote. Thank you, too. I love that quote. <laughs> I, I use it every day. <laughs> uh, Daniel, it's been a pure pleasure to sit and talk to you. I wonder, was there any sort of malpractice here where there was an area we should have touched or discussed and that I failed to bring us to? I don't know if I would put that under malpractice. <laughs> it's not that bad, Dan. <laughs> we touched on this, but I want to just say a, a minute or two about it, which really has to do with how we see boys. You know, I'm, I was involved with a boys task force in this conference I'm putting together. We're having a whole boys panel. I'm really looking at how teachers even administrators, parents, view boys in general. And I think that there's very poor understanding or recognition that boys are these sensitive, sweet, little beings who really want to connect. They really, 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 really want emotional connection. And there are these beliefs in the culture that boys just 
want to roughhouse and fight and then when they get old enough to be with girls or if they're gay to be with guys and not recognizing that boys really want to connect emotionally. And I think that that to me is the biggest travesty that we're facing right now. And we have to change our mindset about little boys, pay more attention and really looking at that point where we start to shame them into traditional masculinity ideology and recognize that these are little boys who deeply, deeply want to connect. There's a movie, uh, The Mask You Live In. I don't know if you know of that. It was done by um, Jennifer Siebold, I believe it was. And there's a scene in there where this African-American man is talking about his nine-year-old son. His son said to him, he said, Daddy, Daddy, I'm sensitive. Brings tears to my eyes when I think about this scene. And the father, he goes like, what the heck is that? <laughs> and, but he's so wonderful, this father. And he starts looking up male sensitivity. He starts learning about it. And he meets his son where he is. To me, and to me, that's such a beautiful thing. And the more that we can meet boys where they are, and really eventually men, and recognize that when you see this gruff guy, even as he's gotten older, you see some guy who seems like he wouldn't know a feeling if it hit him over the head, to recognize that there is a hurting little boy, you know, in that person. And he got guilt-tripped or shamed or criticized or even physically abused to not bring out certain parts of himself. So they got stuffed. And so we really want to honor that and to help guys bring out more of their emotional nature, more of their more sensitive nature. I suspect this is implied in what you're saying, but without in any way condoning the bad behavior that might result from that sort of inappropriate armament. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that, Dan, because as I was thinking that and saying it, I thought, should I say that? And you, because that is actually on my mind. That doesn't mean that just because you were even abused as a child, that that gives you license to abuse other people. Not at all. You may not have been the source of what led to the developing of these abusive attitudes and behaviors. And in fact, you weren't, but you're still responsible mm -hmm. for not acting those out in the world. And that's part of the challenge that I think we all face, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. Well, thank you for prodding us to rise to the challenge. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. If people want to learn more about you, where can they do that? You can look at strengthwithheart.com, strengthwithheart.com. It's really the, what I've called my men's groups, and it's a newer consulting firm that some guys and I are developing right now to really show you can be strong and heartful. You can be strong and not <laughs> heartful also. And the opposite is also true. So this is what we really want to encourage guys to have a really deep sense of personal mission and being a good human being first. Being a good man, that's secondary. Being a good human being. And Dan, thank you very much. I really appreciate your openness and your willingness to divulge yourself. It was part of what excited <laughs> me about coming onto your program because really what you're doing is you're showing other men that you can self-disclose and be a strong human being and a strong man. And we need more men to talk about their inner lives 
And so to me, you're doing a great service. So thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for saying it. And uh, again, thank you for coming on. I got a lot out of this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Daniel. I learned a lot there. Before I let you go, I do want to give a shout out to two of my colleagues. First up, my good friend and co-author on the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, great meditation teacher, Jeff Warren. Jeff is offering a series of in-person retreats. That's right, in-person this summer and fall, which you might want to go check out. He's got two retreats. He's calling them both Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics which, as mentioned, was our book that we co-authored. One of the retreats is in New York in August. The other is in North Carolina in October. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking maybe I should go to one of these. Uh, Also coming up in August, he's leading a new retreat, a training retreat called How to Guide Meditation. For more information on these retreats and all of Jeff's other offerings or to sign up, check out jeffwarren.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, The other shout-out is to my ABC News colleague, L.Z. Granderson, Uh, He's got a new podcast. It's called Life Out Loud, and it draws from his own lived experience as a gay black father. On the show, he hosts thought-provoking, poignant, and engaging conversations with some of the most influential and inspiration in the LGBTQ plus community, as well as some allies. You're going to hear from big names, including Oscar winner Dustin Lance Black, Grammy nominee Rufus Wainwright, Pose star MJ Rodriguez, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci. Check out Life Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. I am, on a, on a personal note, a big fan of LZ, so go check that show out. This show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a big shout out to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday when we come back with another episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem? This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.